everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to season two of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we focus on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we're speaking with Alejandro Lutovsky, founder and CEO of Earth Security, a London and Copenhagen-based group that links global finance to nature's capital and a UNCDF partner. Alejandro, it's a pleasure to have you with us to kick off 2021. Thank you, Esther. It's a real pleasure to be here with you today. So Alejandro, what does it mean to link global finance to nature's capital? Firstly, it means recognizing the value of nature's services provided for development and the real economy are very material to development. And, you know, for example, mangrove forests act as a barrier protecting coastal cities against rising sea levels. Now, they're providing around $65 billion a year in avoided damages. But none of that value is really going into an investment equation of how cities develop or how infrastructure is developing. And that's a very big missed opportunity. So, you know, if you think about many LDCs throughout the tropics, investing this natural asset as a climate adaptation strategy can be 50 times more cost effective than just building a cement wall. And in addition, you know, it's increasing fish stocks acting as a fish nursery for species that provide livelihoods to local communities. And so you start to use nature as an asset infrastructure, and the development benefits are enormous. Uh, But you can actually also save a lot of money. Now, secondly, it means creating investment systems that leverage that natural value. But in order to do that, you need blended finance. You need collaboration. And this, of course, is, is also central to UNCDF's work. But let me give you one quick example to illustrate. You know, California has pioneered what is called a forest resilience bond in order to fight wildfires. Now, what it does, it pays the forest service to drive reforestation and forest conservation. But now that cash flow, that bond is repaid by the water utility in the city and a number of other actors that are actually benefiting from the water flows that the forests are providing. So you create that really positive feedback loop and you use nature as an asset, let's say. Now, many LDCs are facing high deforestation rates. This is happening virtually in every LDC around the world. And this is, you know, interestingly affecting their water availability and water utilities are feeling this and cities are feeling this. As you lose that resilience that forests provide, you lose the hydrological cycle. Now, the trends are only going to worsen over the next few years. And so in order to finance that uses nature services is, in my view, one of the best options to build resilience and adaptation in LDCs. And now, you know, our job at Earth Security is is to build a practical investment case and the partnerships working with investors and development finance institutions and governments to apply these models in different contexts, but also in different scales. Fantastic. So Alejandro, you and I have talked in the past, and of course, this is one reason we're partners, about this idea of looking at finance, nature, development, costs in a much more holistic way than the traditional financial sector has done it in terms of monetary risks and rewards. I wonder if you could just expand a little bit on this idea of avoided damages and what it means to take such a holistic view of 
investment and development. Yeah, but look, very practically, I was talking about the example of mangroves, and this is also work that we're doing in the Philippines at the moment with local partners. Now, if you take a fully grown, healthy mangrove forest, and you know, for those of you that may not be familiar with this ecosystem, these are the, those forests that are growing on the coast, you know, with these skeletal roots growing into the water and actually fixing carbon in the underwater soil. And this is why people refer to blue carbon. Now, take the carbon aside for a second, and let's talk about that adaptation value. A fully grown mangrove, which is quite impenetrable. I mean, once you go, you really can't walk through it. It will, when a tsunami wave hits the coast, as it's happening in the Philippines, you know, it's having the worst typhoon season in its history, that mangrove forest will act as a shield and it will reduce the force of that tidal wave to up to 90%. Just imagine that. And so in many places, you know, from India to Thailand, where and there are, you know, recurrent tsunamis or coastal storms, typhoons, and so on, there's so much evidence around what happens to villages that had intact mangroves versus villages that lost their mangroves. They lost it because, you know, people harvested the wood. They lost it because companies were building aquaculture ponds that just didn't take nature into account. They lost it because of the natural development of populations or cities. Now, the difference is phenomenal because, you know, one has a natural barrier, the other doesn't. And when then you have the climate change impact, the costs of rebuilding, you know, is essentially quite explicit and has to come out of some budget. And when you start to internalize that cost in the way we do or we finance development, then you start to realize the enormous wins, the enormous economic efficiencies that can be had when you start to take these natural assets, natural infrastructures into account more tangibly. And this seems like kind of one of these arguments that we hear a lot, that it's much cheaper to invest in prevention than, you know, dealing with the disaster afterwards. Sometimes that's not so convincing to the financial sector or to decision makers. Are you seeing a change in how investors look at this type of nature-based solution? Well, yes and no. You know, I mean, if we take the broader scope of the finance sector, yes, you see, as I'm sure everyone following financial news can see, very big commitments from banks and global asset managers to develop natural capital funds, right? And as the word indicates, natural capital is a type of capital, but actually investing in that capital is quite hard if you don't already have a cash flow, right? So, you know, the Amazon rainforest is burning down. It is actually producing 20% of the oxygen that we use to breathe as humanity on the planet. Now, seems like a pretty important service, but who's going to pay for it when it's not clear, right? And so what investors are doing, and I think with a lot of the momentum you're seeing today to really start to pay more attention to this natural capital, you know, A, of course, it's facing a lot of barriers, but at the same time, the opportunities are the low-hanging fruit is those industry sectors that already have a cash flow. And so you are going to see most of the sector, I think, of the next few years develop, in particular in the agriculture and land use sector, right? But these are sectors that are already, investments are already generating a cash flow. These are sectors that have an enormous negative impact on biodiversity. And if you develop in a particular way, you know, with agroforestry or regenerative agriculture, you can have those natural capital wins. You can get nature to work for you in ways that, you know, can drive investment. 
but you still have, I think, you know, that gap between what we want to do, what, what the finance sector wants to do, and how easy it's going to be to do it, right? And so this is very important for LDCs. And it's very important for LDCs because LDCs tend to be very rich in biodiversity and natural resources, right? And so I think it's a big opportunity for LDCs to really get into this pipeline. Now, the big focus of the agenda for LDCs must be, in my opinion, to avoid being perceived as nature grabs. You know, we had the land grabs agenda 10 years ago. And what is very important is that we become very aware that international investments that are using nature as an asset can either generate a lot of local value for people, for, for communities, generate uh, local jobs and long-term economic prospects, or not particularly have a focus on local development and then be perceived as what I would call nature grab. You know, I would rather see an investor that is financing a local sustainable aquaculture project that is using mangroves as part of a more circular, you know, more natural production process and is creating employment for local SMEs, as opposed to seeing an investor buying a mangrove coast in order to trade the carbon internationally without really having visible benefits for local people. And I think that's where the whole global investment agenda on nature becomes relevant for LDCs, but also has a range of shades. And we need to be very clear on what success looks like in order not to be promoting an agenda that is not really driving development. Absolutely. And this is one of only one of the many areas on which we agree. So Alejandro, please walk us through Earth Security's history. What inspired you to start it? Well, I founded Earth Security 10 years ago. My concern back then is the same as it is now, is essentially the finance sector and economic development efforts were not fully registering the scale of loss of ecosystem services. Right? We were hitting these planetary, but we are hitting these planetary boundaries. I mean, of course, 10 years on, this is an absolute planetary emergency that we're living through. But back then, even th those things were also visible. And the question I wanted to explore that I've been very driven by was to see how do you align the very practical investment decisions, very practical country strategies that investors have across the finance spectrum, you know, for profit all the way to, you know, more developmental oriented to work in partnership with nature, right? And what does it look like? How can it be done? And how can we bridge that? And so, you know, when I started in 2010, I facilitated this partnership between global banks and credit rating agencies, bringing them together with ecosystem scientists to explore, you know, if we know all these things, how is it possible that credit rating agencies are not taking ecosystems into account at all when they look at country sovereign credit analysis, right? Because if a country is losing all of its forests and therefore it's losing the capacity to generate water, you know, there has to be a signal that tells investors that there is a flag going up. And that wasn't the case. Now, out of that work and the interest of all of these players in working together and the partnership that emerged that essentially produced a prototype for how ecosystem metrics could be streamlined into sovereign credit analysis, to me showed, it showed me that that there's a real need, you know, for an agency, for a player that is connecting actors, that is connecting knowledge, and that is helping develop some of the investment systems that are needed, you know, across the spectrum, and in particular in development finance, that takes nature into account in ways that are fit for a resource-constrained future, I would say. 
Fantastic. And we're seeing the benefits of this work where groups like the Global Impact Investment Network and Sir Ronald Cohen and the uh, GSG group are starting to create metrics where they say for corporations, investors need to take into account the negative impact of the on nature of the corporation's investment strategy and then weigh it on their balance sheet. So I've heard, you know, Sir Ronald Cohen saying things like if you look at Exxon versus Shell, compare their impact on the environment, their balance sheet looks very different in terms of the damage that they're doing to nature. So if you are an investor looking for an energy investment, you must take this into account. And I think those discussions were not happening 10 years ago. So certainly your effort are contributing to that change. So how has Earth Securities work changed in the last 10 years? And how have the financial markets changed in that time that you've seen? Well, look, I think this agenda is growing in importance, right? And so today, 2021, what is interesting to see is just how mainstream the understanding of this need is. Now, 10 years have really given us a pretty good opportunity to experiment with different strategies, analysis, data, engagement models. We've worked globally as well as in country conditions, working with local partners, mobilizing change in how finance considers some of these things. And today, I would say, you know, of course, financial markets are really grappling with carbon and climate change across portfolios. This is quite complicated, but I don't think they fully understood water risks or biodiversity risks. You know, this is really not fully teased out today. And so the real opportunity, as, as we were t- talking about before, of, for change is when you can align finance with the actual services that nature is providing and then get someone to pay for that service, you know, in order that it creates that cash flow. And so whether it's healthy soils for agriculture or even, you know, natural ventilation in buildings, right, that can basically use nature in a way that makes buildings and cities more habitable, but also cheaper, cheaper to build. So you start to create a cash flow that becomes quite positive. It is also nature positive as well. So I'd like to explore in many ways in our current work and also our work going forward, how these values can enhance the effectiveness of financing for development. You know, how it can really help us be a partner in driving, driving development, in particular in LDCs, as you know from our collaboration with you, with UNCDF. You know, but also how they can help mainstream the value of nature in today's asset classes, you know, where there is, it's not all about nature finance, it's also about nature in finance, you know, and, you know, the way that construction companies are financed or the way municipal finance works, as recently worked on together, really needs to embed some of these values as well, because otherwise we are not driving change and systems transformation. It will remain still niche. And so, you know, I think that's more or less where we are. Of course, we have learned as well as you have that financial markets are not a monolithic actor. You know, there's so many investors out there that are willing to roll up their sleeves, to experiment, to drive change. The public institutions more and more that are really wanting to provide those guarantees that can crowd in the private sector. And we see this. This is actually really scaling at the moment. That's another big opportunity. And then finally, that institutional investors like pension funds, where the capital needs to be invested for the long term, I think are becoming increasingly aware of the need to align capital with some of these objectives. So, you know, even, you know, I'm currently in Copenhagen and seeing even Danish uh, pension funds get behind 
the construction of an energy island, you know, that is going to be created from scratch, uh, that is going to produce renewable electricity. And, you know, because they also see the need to supply Europe with electricity that is renewable, they see the long-term business case. And so I think it's really important that within a system and a finance system that will be slow to change, we can identify where are those levers, who are those finance actors that will be able to move faster and will also create, you know, greater ripples of change. And so, of course, in my view, you know, both pension funds and insurance companies are some of those asset owners with whom we can work really productively on this agenda over the next decade. Fantastic. And I think that's one reason we value our partnership so much is that we know that there's such a gap between the discussion of what needs to be done at, say, the UN or multilateral level in terms of incorporating ideas of nature-based solutions, conservation, all of these issues about sustainable development in the future, and then where the financial markets are. There's a massive gap. And we see that even when financial actors are willing to consider new models, there's a lot of hard work to be done in testing, piloting, experimenting, proving the case, and then scaling the models to the point where these financial actors can actually buy them. And that's a huge gap and one that we are very happy that you are working in and that we're working in with you. So we talked a little bit about the mangrove ecosystems. Alejandro, please tell us about your new report on this topic. Great. Look, I think that's a really good segue because I wanted to talk about something very practical, you know, and so we've been talking a bit about the biggest systemic agenda. Now, let's bring it to the very, very practical level to also see how this stuff works, you know, and how we can work with some of these fundamentals within portfolios and programs. So, you know, as you know, we've just launched a big report of mangroves. We're looking at mangroves as an asset for investment. And we're exploring, you know, what is the value of this asset, but how do you build this value into your existing investments, as well as create these more interesting sort of bigger, bigger concepts as well. But let me talk very practically about an aspect of that work uh, we've done throughout 2020. And this was a partnership that we've had with CDC Group, the UK's development finance institution. Now, we've worked with CDC to show how an investment in their portfolio, which is a coastal wind farm in Pakistan, in the outsides of Karachi, in an area that is essentially a mud floodplain that is quite degraded, where this project has installed 25 wind turbines and is going to be producing clean electricity, much needed in the country, of course. Now, this project invested in the restoration of the mangroves on site, right? And what we have shown through our work with CDC is that that investment in mangrove restoration by this one project in particular location in Pakistan will have 20 times the return on investment over the 25 years of this asset's lifespan. And why is that value going to be so big? It's because those mangroves are going to provide the project's infrastructure with a protection against coastal erosion that over the lifespan of the asset will mean almost $7 million saved in maintenance costs, right? And when you start to bring it to this level, you start to make it really, really practical, right? So think about that. I mean, we took six, seven million dollars of savings. Now, if you also include the community benefits, because what happens? I mean, this site is 
based in an area of acute poverty where communities are highly dependent on subsistence fishing. And these fish stocks are collapsing. They're collapsing all over the world. Now, as this project rebuilds its mangroves, it's rebuilding the nursery grounds for, you know, for some of these fish and, and seafood uh, species. You know what's happened? Already, the communities have seen doubling of their catch and a doubling of their income. They're being now able to export some of the crab and shrimp catches to Japan. And this is incredible, right? And so you start to see if we take into account the value created for communities as well, then the return on investment is of $12 million over 25 years, right? And that just shows, it makes a very practical point for what this means for how we think about development finance. So of course, we've also shown how mangroves are critical as an adaptation, climate adaptation infrastructure for cities. And many of them are actually in LDCs. So this becomes a very attractive model for thinking about adaptation finance, right? And we are proposing, amongst other things, the creation of a nature-driven adaptation fund for cities to use nature as a tool for climate adaptation. But most importantly, you know, and on a third level, if you want, we're also looking how we can go from this very specific project in Pakistan that you can spot on Google Maps, and then we zoom out. And we ask the question, where are all the mangroves located around the world? How much do we still have? And the first you know, headline is actually quite worrying because we've lost 50% of all mangroves on the planet in the last couple of decades you know, because of unsustainable development. And most of the mangroves that are left are left in 750 locations, of which we identify 40 that cover a big chunk of that, and where you have cities that are vulnerable to climate change. Again, many of them in LDCs, super relevant for LDCs, and where you can actually drive a climate adaptation finance agenda that then starts to create real scale in mangrove regeneration. And so, you know, I think it's very important as we move forward with this agenda and we think about its implication for development finance, its implication for LDCs and outcomes, that we are able to move across scales. You know, we're able to look at the very specific project in Pakistan. You know, we look at the projects in Senegal, you look at the projects in Myanmar, these are in Bangladesh, these are countries that are really in the hotspots of mangrove assets and, and also mangrove loss. But that we can also gain some scale in how we together look at, you know, the regions. We look at West Africa, we look at East Africa or South Asia, because you can also deploy financing strategies that are not just project level, but that also engage multilateral banks and others in investing it with a more regional, regional scope. That's amazing. So this is so exciting, the idea of this. And I love that you've done the practical formatting and blueprinting of what it actually looks like. Who do we need to convince about this? Alejandro, because we know that, you know, taking in this kind of holistic analysis of benefits to the community, benefits to the environment, benefits to future livelihoods are not traditionally how structured project finance investors look at a potential investment in a municipal project, for example. So what are the steps to getting something like this done? Is it that you convince the multilateral players like the DFIs to provide concessional capital? Is it that, you know, we talk to the project financers and try to change their minds? Like what actually, what do we need to do to get this, to make this a reality? Look, I think there's 
two or three ingredients of a really practical action agenda going forward. And the first is, you know, already the work that we've been doing with CDC Group, you know, has provided an evidence that didn't exist before. I mean, all this discussion, Esther, we've been having makes a lot of sense. But when you start thinking that the evidence, not just of the laws, but actually what DFIs can literally do in their portfolios, doesn't exist. And so, you know, this one case that actually constructed a balance sheet to show, look, this investment in Pakistan, this is how you value this asset. This is how you make it part of your economic equation. So we've now produced that, and this is enabling both CDC to start thinking about how do I build this into my other portfolios at large and my climate strategy. But we're hoping that that can also shape a very practical discussion with the DFI community of how you do this at scale in every portfolio. Take the very specific example, take the very specific metrics and scale that up. And I think that's one route to scale that I find quite interesting. Now, secondly, I'm particularly inspired by what I've just seen in the news, which is that finally the African Development Bank has committed, together with the World Bank and others, $14 billion to finance the Great Green Wall in the Sahel. And what is this? Is 8,000 kilometers of regeneration across the Sahel from East Africa to West Africa. And I mean, this is mind blowing, right? Because it just shows that multilateral banks at the scale of the African Development Bank, but take the Asian Development Bank, take the World Bank, you know, take the Inter-American Development Bank, they have the scale and the assets to start to think about nature restoration on continental scales, right? And this is not science fiction anymore. As the green wall of the Sahel shows, those blueprints are possible, you know, that you can project regeneration at scale as, as a vector of prosperity on a region. And I think that's the agenda I would say for multilateral development banks that we need to explore. How do you take other ecosystems, what we're calling earth assets, and do the same? You know, we are, of course, proposing that with mangroves, a great agenda for the Asian Development Bank, given the importance of Asia, but also very important in Africa. And so, but the other ecosystems as well. And so, you know, secondly, I do think that multilateral development banks have a unique opportunity there. And then thirdly, as I was saying, you know, let's focus very specifically on institutional investors that have capital that is thinking long-term. Again, I think that with a portion of the finance sector that is about shorter-term uh, returns, this is not an agenda that is relevant immediately. So let's drop that for now. And let's focus on some of those pockets of capital, you know, DFIs, the bigger multilateral banks, but also pension fund and insurance companies as asset owners that can then start to put some capital into this. And then the question is, put capital into what? And that's the third thing that we're therefore exploring, which is what are those financing facilities and what are those investment products that are by definition blended finance that can absorb some of this commercial capital with a longer term horizon? That of course, you know, they need, they need the foundations, they need the Green Climate Fund and the Global Environment Facility to put in some guarantees. But the systems already exist. What we need to do now is to scale that up. And so, look, I would say for me, these three buckets, if you want, really give us a playbook that is very practical, that has real economic numbers behind it to really argue the business case, that is also specific enough so that we can engage in particular geographies. So it is not just at the level of systems, it's also looking at place and looking at regions. And this is where 
I think it becomes really relevant and it becomes also very relevant for you and CDF and part of why we're so excited by our ongoing collaboration, of course. Absolutely. So one of the challenges that we faced, and we know you are aware of this as well, Alejandro, is that the asset owners with a long-term focus are also quite conservative, as they should be, because they're guaranteeing people's retirement funds. So one of the challenges we've run into is that they'll say, we're interested in these new approaches to solve new problems that are critical and pressing. But before they move any of their money, they want uh, quite a lot of certainty, right? They like to see track record. They like to see assets under management. They want to see that it's worked before. So how do we get around that kind of risk return mismatch and also the time frame mismatch that the institutions that have the money to support these long-term solutions are not seeing right now the track record that they need because, of course, all the innovations and the methods to deal with these challenges are new, but we need them to invest now for the future. What can we do about that? Look, two things. You know, I think the first thing, I have a lot of faith in blended finance because the institutional investors are not the only large capital providers. We also have large-scale public capital providers, and we need to bring them to the table. Unless we bring them to the table, we can't bring the other side, which is the commercial side, because the investment thesis is just a bit too flimsy. But when you put large-scale capital to provide guarantees, look at the sovereign blue bonds, where you have DFIs that are coming in and saying, we're going to put millions to guarantee that if the government defaults on payments, you're not going to lose money. And that becomes almost like a deal enabler. Right. Of course, if you don't have that, then it's almost like a non-starter the discussion. But we need to start thinking about that public capital that matches the private capital at scale. And I think that is going to be one of the big, very practical discussions we can sit around the table right now and start to think through really how do we create these bigger investment vehicles where you have a meeting of capital, right? And that blended finance that becomes an enabler. You know, and then the public side, and this is one area we are looking at now, the public side has many faces, you know, and one of them is political insurance. And political risk insurance is a super catalytical area of guarantees, as in the um, sovereign papers, you know, where you're basically saying, if you're going to invest in LDCs and your concern, first of all, we'll show you the numbers, you know, that there is a cash flow to this, you know, I mean, you are going to make money, but if your worry is, the level of country risk and that, you know, you may not see your money again. Well, look, we actually have a political risk insurance solution for you that is part of this deal. And so I think we need to tick those boxes. And and again, public catalytic capital is the way to go. I think 2020 and 2021, sort of we saw it last year, this year it's going to accelerate, no doubt. There's a lot of political will from public institutions to now, you know, they put their toes in the water and now they want to come in big. I think that's a big opportunity. Now, that's the lower hanging fruit, the medium fruit, a bit greener perhaps, but that is really interesting to explore is this idea that we've talked about in the past, which is this idea of spreading risk by blending LDCs with developed economies. And you can only do that credibly when you start to have a coherent story for that. And so, you know, let me tell you the mangrove story. What is the mangrove story? (laughs) Is that when you look at this asset on a planetary scale, what is really quite mind blowing is that if you see what are the cities around the world that have the biggest potential to invest in nature-based adaptation uh, for mangroves, you get two cities. And one is Miami, 
think the Everglades, I mean, there's a massive extension, but Miami has essentially lost a lot of the mangroves to build all these hotels that are now super vulnerable to climate change, right? And when you look at some of the municipal debt or municipal green debt that Miami has issued recently, interestingly enough, we've shown that mangroves are already part of what the city is trying to do, mangrove restoration. It's already there, right? It's just we're not seeing it fully. Now, you have Miami on the one hand, and you have Mongla, one of Bangladesh's biggest cities, on the other hand. And if you think about Miami and Mongla, I mean, these cities couldn't be more different, right? In terms of creditworthiness, of resources, of technical capability, all the stuff that UNCDF is so brilliant at building. Now, my sense here is to say, well, what would happen if you put Miami's debt and Mongla's debt together in a fund that basically assures investors, those that are purely profit-driven, if you want, but there has to be a really hard case for this. But if we can show that by holding this debt together across 40, 50 cities, we are able to somehow spread the risk. If you see the cities that we've identified, we have Miami, we have Brisbane, we have Darwin in Australia. And we also, of course, we have the Monglas and we have the Guayaquil's in Ecuador, and we have all sorts of other cities there as well. And you can see that blueprint that we've put together is very practical. Now, I think it's worth exploring what would happen when you create a bond fund that then somehow spread the risks between these cities. And, and I think we need almost the proof of concept of that, you know, and start to see how that would work and how that would then benefit the LDCs. Because I think in many ways, we need to go beyond that black or white perspective. And so if we can show that by blending developed OECD economic outlooks into instruments that actually are going to benefit LDCs, because if you didn't have that debt, then those cities wouldn't get the money. I think that that could be a really good frontier for innovation to try things out. So look, not, not to overextend, but those would be my two angles where we can move into this agenda with quite a lot of practical acumen in mind. Fantastic. And I know we've talked about this very exciting idea of kind of twinning cities in a bond fund structure and using development finance from a wealthy country to guarantee the debt of the poorer city so that the quality of the credit, you know, matches the more developed city. So I think there are really so many exciting opportunities there. So Alejandro, we love your vision and your enthusiasm and your passion. Now that you're 10 years into Earth security, what's in the future? What's ahead in the next 10 years? Well, look, it feels almost like these 10 years have been a warm-up, to be honest, right? Because we started too early. I mean, this agenda was really very, very uh, horizon scanning. We could feel that this was coming, but it was very difficult to convince people, to be honest. So if you see our early work, we always went for the very practical. So our very first project was looking at land grabs in agricultural investments, you know, what pension funds could do when they were being pulled into a real asset deal in Uganda by sustainable forestry or, or whatever other company was to not be slapped in the face with a land eviction of poor communities on the ground. And so we, we've always been looked at the big agenda, but then made it very, very practical. What does it mean for decision making? And how do you then align capital to this long-term perspective? And so I think we still very much true to that principle. You know, what the last 10 years, as I was saying, has given us is quite a lot of experience because we've worked on this from so many angles. What I'm excited about is that the next 10 years have a totally different momentum to it because now the world has caught up in many ways. And this discussion is being had in the insurance world, is being had in the asset management world. We're working in partnership with HSBC and UBS. 
as well as CDC and, of course, SDC, the Swiss government. They're all of these players that are totally seeing it. And everyone is asking the practical questions. And of course, the practical questions are the ones we like. I think over the next 10 years, we want to be driving real change, working with partners like UNCDF, of course, in order to gain greater scale. But I think a bit of the playbook for all of us over the next decade is to continue working on the concepts, continue working on the evidence, the business case, the numbers, at the same time, work on the very practical, even territorial, I would say, not just you know, the Pakistan example I described, which is a must because it allows you then to dream bigger. But I would really like to explore some of these bigger geographic ideas. The African Development Bank is driving the green wall of the Sahel. What else can be done? How do we take other asset classes and drive an investment strategy through public-private collaboration at scale? And so these are just some of the things that are driving us at the moment. We have a great plan for 2021. We want to take the mangroves blueprint and replicate it. And every year we're learning more and more things. We're gaining more and more partners. So it's just quite exponential, you know, and I'm just quite excited to be on this journey, particularly with you guys. Thank you, Alejandro. And of course, the next 10 years are the decade of action for the 2030 agenda. And also we'll see in the COP this year that there is accelerated action on the Paris Agreement and that more and more entities, member states, as well as corporations, as well as financial entities are being pushed to release their path to net zero. So we are exactly seeing this momentum that you're talking about well after you had kind of seen it coming, but we are glad to see this momentum and acceleration coming. And so we also think the next 10 years will be quite critical, especially for LDCs to reach their 2030 and Paris climate goals. Alejandro, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Esther. A pleasure talking to you. Thanks again to everyone for joining us on UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org. Thank you and stay safe.